Hello, Brad here. Just to say we're super proud that the Friday 5pm podcast is sponsored by the Malt Miller, the UK's best home brew store. We use the Malt Miller for all of our homebrew experiments, as well as tapping them up for advice and binging on their awesome YouTube channel all the time. That's why whenever we release a homebrew video, we put a recipe kit live on the Malt Miller, so you can brew with the exact same amazing ingredients that we did. The same ingredients used by pro brewers. So alongside the Malt Miller's nitro-flushed hops, cold-stored yeast and milled-to-order malts, you can pick up recipe kits for our Five Points Best Bitter, Russian River West Coast IPA, and now the fastest beer in the world, a hazy session IPA that goes from grain to glass in less than 48 hours. Sign up to their newsletter at tinyurl.com forward slash maltmiller to get 5% off your first order. With the Malt Miller's amazing customer service and Johnny's 48-hour recipe, you could order the ingredients on a Monday and be drinking the beer by the weekend. Speaking of which, it's Friday. It's 5pm. So enjoy this week's Friday 5pm podcast. Oh, I love that stuff. Been drinking it for years. Drinking it for years. Drinking it for years. Drinking it for years. You know, I, I recently decided to add more hops to it. To it. Hops to it. You know, I, I heard they recently decided to add more hops to it. To it. Hops to it. Hello and welcome to episode two of The Bubble. Um, this week we have Tim Anderson, former MasterChef winner and the owner of Namban, um, a lovely uh, ramen restaurant mm-hmm. in Brixton. Um, so Tim sort of came in to chat to us about sort of his background in beer, um, managing the Houston Tap, winning MasterChef and opening a restaurant and how beer sort of fitted into that and how beer fits into restaurant culture um, and beer and food. And I think I was pretty surprised at the outcome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we when, when we planned this podcast, I wanted to talk to Tim, A, because he's an astonishing, astonishing chef, B, because he used to run the Houston Tap, which back when he was running it was one of the only and certainly the premier craft beer bar in London. Uh, and thirdly, because I thought, being a beer lover who owned a restaurant, he would be dead behind the idea of beer and food matching. As it turned out, he's kind of dead against the idea of beer and food matching. Um, we won't spoil what his, his approach is. He still believes in it, but he takes a very different approach to what I expected him to do uh, and for what maybe I would say and champion. But then as you listen to him talk you start to realise he's 100% right. <laughs> yeah, he knows what he's talking about. Um, and it wasn't really the outcome I think either of us expected, but I suppose that's why we're doing this, is to dig a little bit deeper and find out a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, really, if this bubble concept that we have is working, we should be being proved wrong the whole time. It should show that the bubble's slightly out of touch, and the way it really is is this. So and I think that's really what happened. Episode one and two have done that, yeah. um, which, is, which is good. Um, so you, this is episode two, Tim Anderson of Namban, speaking about beer, food, and what makes him tick. So uh, when, when were you at the Houston Tap? When was I working there? Yeah, yeah. Or when was I most recently were, drinking there? Let's, let's go for most <laughs> recently drinking there. Actually, that's, it's been a while, because I'm not usually in that area anymore. If I, if I have a train coming in and out of Houston, I make a point, if I can... To have a drink before Critique or after. It. Go in and be like, <laughs> it wasn't like that on my day. Eh, well, 
<laughs> oh my god, it wasn't great when I was there either. To be totally <laughs> fair, it is a, they've got a great range um, in a lovely building. The interior always needs a bit of work. Always. Have you toilets? been in the second? The second turret that used no, to be the side attack I've never been is there. much nicer. Is it? It feels like, like they meant to put a bar in there, whereas the other one's right. a little bit more accidental. The toilet is the weirdest thing in the world. You know, the man journal, and it feels like it's sort oh, of... Oh, that tiny one. It's yeah. big enough. Yeah. It feels like it should fit two, and then a second person squeezes <laughs> in. Yeah. You're, like, you're really close to me when you're going to the toilet. <laughs> Suddenly <laughs> your pipes clock up, and yeah. you're like, no. no. So I, I got a great toilet story at the... A couple from the Houston tab, actually, because... Um, we well, it, it it doesn't have great plumbing. The Houston Tap. Um, it was never meant to be a, a, pub, a bar, yeah, a pub, yeah. or anything. So, the the drains, as we discovered, <laughs> kind of too late, uh, didn't go anywhere. They basically went into a big pit in the ground, like a hole. Well, like next to the cellar. Like under, uh, yeah, I guess so. Oh, like outside the cellar, um, which is well contained. Don't worry about that. But. Yeah, we, um, we, there was a manhole cover in the floor in the Houston tap that started bubbling up one night, um, and we had to, like, get everybody out. And, what did um, you tell the customers? We didn't have to tell them anything because they could smell it. <laughs> they, just, they just left. Actually, they didn't leave. This is the best thing about that story is that everybody just stayed and drank their beer and kind of like they went to the other side of their bar <laughs> to get like, the next I round. I paid for it. Or... I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, but they'd stay and have another drink. Like this is a testament to actually how good the Houston Tap is. We, have great, we had great beer and good vibes. We had people uh, in the garden leaning through the window um, to place orders and get their beers. Sniffing their hands while they're yeah. drinking. But anyway, we had to get it pumped a few times, and the things we found when they pumped it out were ridiculous. Like, there were nappies and wigs. Um, <laughs> I, I would love else. to know the story of that wig. Yeah. I think there was a brassiere, like a bra. I don't know why I said brassiere, like it's 1920. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, they pulled all kinds of stuff out of there, and as far as I know, it's fine now. But yeah, the, um, the other couple of things that happened with the toilets themselves was one night they got clogged, and of course, we realized, again, too late, that we didn't have a plunger. So I had to double wrap my arm in bag. bin bags and no. excavate by hand. Uh, I'd be hoping for a wig at that point. <laughs> <laughs> so that was nasty. And I, I think you have to do that. I think that's I think like a rite of passage, though. In the, in the pub game, you need yeah. some horrible, horrible toilet stories. It always just amazes me. It's like how they can be in that state. Right. I, yeah, like what, did you, what yeah. did you do? Like what did you eat, man? Sat on the toilet like A.C. Slater from Saved by the Bell or something. <laughs> right. But um, that's not even the worst thing that happened. The worst thing that happened was some guy came in one day and he was like, well, usually we just don't let... Um, we make a judgment call on whether or not yeah, yeah. use the toilet. But I know that Houston Station, you have to pay, and like there's no other toilets around, so we're quite nice about it usually. And this guy came in, like I kind of couldn't tell if he was like a hipster or a or a vagrant. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I was like, well, this guy seems cool. Yeah, you can use the toilet. And like 20 minutes later, I, I forgot about this guy, and somebody comes down and somebody was like, "There's been a guy in the bathroom for 20 minutes." I was like, "Oh my god." So I went up there and I banged on the door and he was like, yeah, I'm coming out. And five minutes go by and I'm like, this guy's not coming out. So I unlocked the door, open it, and he was in there smoking crack oh with his God. pants down. I didn't know you could smoke crack. With your pants down? Or yeah. <laughs> I'm going to try it. Yeah, so I had to kind of forcibly eject him from the toilet and then the premises. Did you let him put yep. his pants up? Uh, I, of course, yeah. No. <laughs> but he was reluctant to do so. Like, <laughs> I don't know. 
So yeah, that's that's the Houston tap. That was back in 2011. That that's was, when you were managing it. That was when I was managing it. <laughs> how, yeah. And how long were you in that role for? Uh, about six months. So I I got that when I was filming MasterChef, which was throughout 2010. Um, I was working for Whole Foods as a beer buyer, which was really like a glorified assistant manager job um, at their Stoke Newington branch. So I quit that job because they didn't like me taking time off to film MasterChef anyway. Um, And then when the the filming wrapped, I had to find a job, and I applied for that one at the Houston Tap. It was an assistant manager job. um, And I'd never worked in a pub or hospitality or restaurant or anything in my life at that point. So I was just like, I'm not going to get this job, but whatever. I know about beer. Um, so, and, and I got the job as assistant manager, and I was trained up. But then like a week or two later, the, um, the, the manager at that time was fired. So all of a sudden... Was he the dude smoking crack? No. <laughs> he was... I, people who know the use and tap will know who I'm talking about. So I probably shouldn't go into detail. But... The last straw, I think this is kind of funny. Basically, he had a bit of a lock-in, and um, we had these, uh, like, faucet-style taps for the cask. Oh, yeah. Years, and he left one open. Uh, it was a cask of Raven, um, Thornbridge Raven. The black oh, the Wild, Wild Raven, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I don't know why. I feel like that beer in particular just makes it funnier. <laughs> like, yeah, he left it open, ruined the floor, wasted a <laughs> uh, whole cask. Um, yeah, but then I was the manager of the Houston Tap. There was another guy who was helping me, who was hired as like a co-manager. That's another story. Um, but basically, yeah, I was kind of thrown in the deep end, doing something I'd not done before. There was one week I remember I didn't order enough beer. Like I barely ordered enough beer. Um, by the by Monday, we had like maybe six casks left in the cellar that I don't think had been tapped yet or anything. Um, but yeah, and and also for whatever reason, like we did get it was a, we got a pallet of Dark Star. So like by Sunday evening, like it was just all Dark Star. Basically. Dark Star takeover it settles really quick through Dark Star. It so does, you can yeah. just be like, I haven't vented it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you know, we 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 sold beer. We stayed open. Maybe didn't have the range that everybody wanted us to have that weekend. But you live and learn. Yeah. What type of stuff were you selling back then? Um. Well, we sold. We had a lot of Thornbridge. We always had um, at least one Thornbridge on. Uh, Wild Swan was a big one because yeah. back then they had a, a pricing structure based on ABV, and I think you could get a pint of Wild Swan for like three fifty. Yeah, be about probably less even. Yeah, it was really really low. Um, so we sold a lot of that. Um, we had our house lugger was uh, Bernard. Check logger. I think it still is, isn't it? I think it is, yeah, because they've got the owner, Jamie Hawksworth, I think has a deal yeah. with them, and they he, he, that's what they sell at Pivney in York and all the other various taps. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a great logger, actually, and they did a dark one and a few other versions. Um, yeah, Crucevice we had for a while. It was the other Czech one we had. We had Mars, uh, Weissbeer a lot. We had Westmall. Um, on draft, yeah, on draft, which was amazing. Like, it's, it's still a joy to find that. Oh, in it is, yeah. yeah. There is uh, a pub quite near here called the Chesham, and the the guy just loves Vesma, and he just has a. It's like a community boozer. Yeah, it's not like super craft forward. He just likes like an independent range. But he just was like, I love Vesma. So staying on. And it's so <laughs> nice to go in. It's got a fire as well. So like when the fire's lit in the winter, pint of Vesma. 
Mine away. You monster. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing, man. nothing better than it, mate. A pint of <laughs> um, Yeah, but then, oh, so we had, we had uh, I think it was two thirds keg and then the rest was cask. And uh, we had some great casks. We had the one I always got excited about was Bristol uh, Acer, which was one of the first Sriracha Ace beers I had. Um, and it was, it was also during this time when everybody was doing these like 3.9% hoppy golden ales. Yeah. And, like, they were amazing. Like, Wild Swan was one of them. Um, Camden, Inner City Green. Yeah, it was their first beer, wasn't it? Was it? Yeah. It, that was amazing. Like, yeah. I was upset when they stopped doing that. But they, they've re-released it now. Post, Have they? Post-AB InBev, they, you know, because they need to keep their origin story going. <laughs> um, they've, they've re-released it. It's a summer, summer release now, I think. It's kind of a shame you never see them around. Like, Hell's is everywhere. You get the wit and the pale everywhere but you like i lost uh i, I kind of there's a dog barking is that that's weird? rob's dog <laughs> <laughs> it's the god dog um i kind of yeah i'm not I, uh for whatever reason like i feel like they're not promoting their their other beers enough yeah. you know because i'd love to see ihl around if they even still brew that i don't yeah, know it's not the beer it was no. But it's just it's InBev sort yeah. of rolling out what they can mass market, and that's yeah. hells. So yeah, the yeah. other bits keep them slightly relevant and a bit of romanticism for the, the older customers yeah. like, like us, but they don't make any money from it. They can't, <laughs> they can't push it out globally, so it's not an InBev's nature, I suppose. No, that's a shame. That was, that was a great beer. Um, and what about sort of American imports? Because I think that's, that's why I started drinking at the tap, yeah. like those Lagunitas. Yeah, the main thing I remember <clears throat> about that back then was that they were they were super expensive, so we didn't sell very many, um, especially because we had such a good cask offering, and all those were really cheap, like mm. four pounds a pint um, for really good stuff. Oh, we also got in a lot of summer wine and Buxton. Yeah. And, and summer wine was really hoppy back then. They yeah. were, like, crazy. Um, but anyway, yeah, we American-wise, we had a lot of Anchor, um, and we had a lot of bottles from Stone, uh, Sierra Nevada. Odell would have been quite big back then. Odell we had a lot of, yeah. Um, but all this beer would um, go out of date because nobody bought it, um, mainly because of the price. I remember we had an amazing selection, amazing range that the, the original manager ordered in of Hoppin' Frog. Um, really? Yeah, like amazing. <laughs> back in what, 2010, wow. 2011? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had, like, they had Boris and, and um, the Wee Heavy and all this stuff. But nobody touched it, partly because they had really bad branding. Like, the bottles just don't look they very good. They still do, yeah. Yeah. But amazing beers. Yeah. And I remember, like, when they went out of date, we were like, well, we have to drink these now. So yes. <laughs> we, had, uh, we had a bit of a, a session on, on Hop and Frog one night. Messy night. Where did the sort of beer journey begin for you then? Because obviously if you were at Whole Foods buying beer for them, you must have had a bit of a mm. prelim into that. This summer, I'm going to be hosting talks at the Manchester, Bristol and London Craft Beer Festivals, giving festival goers the chance to attend tutored tastings, rare beer pours, meet the brewers and even guided tours of the bars. These three festivals are the highlights of my events calendar, featuring some of the world's best breweries with delicious restaurant pop-ups, great music and a really welcoming party atmosphere. It's the third year I've been hosting the We Are Beer Tastings table, but for the first time I'm delighted to offer all of our listeners, viewers and Patreons £5 off a ticket when you use the code CBC5. Just hit the link in the description to buy. See you there.
It was a hobby. I mean, I um, I grew up and in high school. I never liked beer when I was a kid. Where, like, did, you, where did you grow up? Wisconsin, in a city called Racine, which is south of Milwaukee. And at parties in high school, everybody would have, like, Pabst and uh, uh, even worse, things like nat- natural ice and um, old Milwaukee. <laughs> Uh, Milwaukee's best. Terrible, terrible, cheap, awful lagers. Although I do have a real soft spot for, for hams. But anyway, I grew up not liking <laughs> beer. Hams is a beer, just for... Yeah, yeah not, not the... I like ham as well. Everyone's got it drunk and you're just in the corner with a large ham. Yeah. <laughs> On the bone. Um, but yeah, so I, I would drink... I would take sips of beer at parties and stuff, and I, just, I never liked it because like, it was terrible beer. Um, and then... I can't remember who it was. It was like a mix of a few things. It was mainly my dad. He, when I got older, he started drinking like better beer. Like he'd have at home um, Sierra Nevada and Sam Adams um, and this brewery Leinenkugels, which is owned by Miller. But they do like they do some really silly stuff, like a like a blueberry wheat beer and a shandy. But they do some really awesome, like solid kind of Germanic styles as well, like yeah. a, like a Schwartz beer and um, and a amber lager. So I started drinking those, and I was like, oh, I actually kind of like this. And then I had a college professor who was also into beer, and he was like a home brewer and stuff, and he um, told me about Beer Advocate, the website. And he was like, you check it out. It's like, you can leave reviews and stuff. So I, I did, and that's how I, I like taught myself about beer through Beer Advocate, through the like Beer 101 stuff, and then just trying things. Because um, you could get really good beer... I was living in LA at that point. I was in college, and you could get really good beer just kind of anywhere, any any yeah. liquor store. That you could get Stone, you could get Anderson Valley, um, you could get Rogue. Rogue was really big back then. So I just kind of started picking things up and trying them. Um, and I remember the beer that like really, really, really like got me into beer was uh, Old Rasputin, the Russian mm-hmm. Imperial Stout from North Coast, because I had it at a sports bar actually. And I was like, this is It's a dangerous mix, sports and old Rasputin. (laughs) Yeah, and I wrote my first beer review of that on a napkin, and then I put it in Beer Advocate later. Um, And just went from there. And then I started writing reviews. I was like a beer ticker type person, really obnoxious. Um, (laughs) But I used that to get my first beer job, which was as a salesman for a company that was importing uh, Danish craft beer. Uh, But that was back in 2009, and it hadn't really taken off yet the whole craft beer thing um, so nobody wanted it and also I was a terrible salesman so but that was my first beer job and I got that just because I knew about beer um, and then I used that to get the job at Whole Foods and then Houston Tap so that's my beer journey the beer journey and so you said you said you were working at Whole Foods and they weren't so sympathetic uh, with your filming of MasterChef so no. we've touched on it but uh, that's what's led you on your well not necessarily new path but the current path yeah. you're on so uh, MasterChef is now I think you must have been one of the original new series of that mm. um, and it's now absolutely exploded well yeah I mean I wasn't I was the seventh series in the new series but I was the first year that they went to BBC One um, so that series like objectively I feel is a really good one because they had a big budget they went to a new studio um, they uh, there was a lot of big travel we went to Australia New York and um, Madrid an Inverness. <laughs> um, where else did we go? No, it was it was an amazing uh, series and a lot of great opportunities. But yeah, that that for me was obviously a big year. But it is for anybody. I just can't believe how long the show's been going. Um, 
I'm a little bit out of the loop, to be honest, because they used to have more events surrounding MasterChef uh, that would involve the, the contestants. Um, but yeah, to be honest, I don't. I haven't met any of the winners from the past. Do you not have like a reunion every so often and get together? There are these events every now and again where you see people. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I see Drew a lot. I mean, not a lot. He won the year before me. Yeah, we all know each other. How did you get involved in it? Um, I just I was a fan of the show when I first moved here. I. Started watching it the year Matt Follis won, who's from uh, New Zealand. Uh, and then I watched Dhruv win, and the year that Dhruv won, I was like, this looks like fun. I'll apply. And I went online, and I took 20 minutes and applied. And that was, and then I forgot about it. Like, I didn't have great ambitions. I was like, this might be a cool, interesting, weird thing to do. And then I didn't think I'd get on the show, because they have tens of thousands of applicants. Uh, but then I did, after a long sort of... Uh, interview and um, audition process. What, what was your cooking experience before then? You were just a home oh, cook? Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, you're not allowed to have had any professional experience. Like, I worked in a sub-sandwich shop in Minneapolis. Cheap! <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the guys who was on my series, Tom Whitaker, I think he worked in a Burger King for a while. <laughs> you must be really good at writing cover letters. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's it, because I was thinking, like, man, like, I, I kind of, I must have done well on my application. Yeah, definitely. Um, but imagine how many really great cooks there are who aren't going to get on the show and then obviously not going to win because they can't they can't sell themselves yeah. you know yeah. that's a big thing so um so yeah no it was uh if, uh, I was uh, every step of the way I was surprised yeah like I was surprised I got on I was surprised I got through every time and I was super surprised I won I didn't expect that were you really foodie at the time as well mm. But I didn't really know anything. Like, I, what, I would cook a lot um, at home, and I would, I've always been interested in, like, trying out new flavors, and always been into Japanese food um, in particular. But I, I didn't eat at a lot of nice restaurants or anything back then. Like, I knew a lot of the guys on that show, the contestants, like, were super foodie and always going to quite fine dining kind of places. But, like, I was just messing around, basically. You were go, going to work and picking out wigs from toilets after a yeah. long day for the others are at Le Gavroche learning. <laughs> right, right. So, um, I mean, I vaguely remember the season that you were on. Yeah. And my, what I took away from that was that you did cook with beer. I did, yeah. By the way, what are we drinking? This is really... So this is Supernova nice. by uh, Vizette. So it's a, a new kind of upstart Belgian brewery. Um, and it's their Belgian blonde. Um, no. Supernova stands for No American Hops. So it's ah. it's all European hops, Belgian yeast strain, kind of like Taras Bulba, a little bit fruitier. That's it does taste very Belgian. Yeah, it's lovely. Um, anyway, yeah, I cooked a bit with beer, um, just because that's what I. What beer did you cook with? Do you remember? I remember um, I, I I used a Schlenkerla, one of the rough oh, beers, amazing. in um, a pork dish to get the smoky flavor in. Which is really useful for cooking. Yeah, it kind of tastes like a bacon sandwich it anyway, does, doesn't yeah. it? So um, I, it? Yeah, I did. Um, I used a fair amount of stout, uh, again, with, with red meats. I can't remember exactly what I did with them now. Um, but then I also used uh, Lindemann's cassis in a dessert. Huh. Uh, like, I made a kind of blackcurrant compote with that as the cooking liquid. Um, which was really, really, really delicious, actually. Like, I, I, I really like Lindemann's Cassis, actually. It's like, I think it's just kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all that whole range by Lindemann's, like the sweetened stuff, is 
undeniably delicious for a bottle, and then <laughs> some of it is a bit like I don't like Pesheres very much. People love Pesh. Do they? Pesh <laughs> is a big seller. Um, it's also like a weird, creepy bottle, you know. It is. It is. Yeah. It is a bit, it's I think Portman Group like, should uh, <laughs> have, yeah, a word. have a word. But I, I love their uh, Mikuler collaborations as well. The the basil one, spontan oh, pesto, yeah, so good. Yeah, and uh, the elderflower one was really, really good too. I've never eaten it with a pizza, but every time I try, I'm like, <laughs> no I just need to get like a big margarita with this. Yeah, it's so tasty. <laughs> so did you did you watch? Because I remember maybe two or three seasons ago. Um, I'm actually quite a MasterChef fan, actually, and I'm going to betray this now. Uh, somebody um, cooked a cooked a stew, and they cooked it with a hoppy beer. Oh dear! Uh, which is uh, for those at home uh, a, a newbie error. Yeah. Big no no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and nobody uh, on MasterChef could work out why it tasted slightly bitter and acrid. And they You're were like, kidding. "Oh well, I think you've maybe you've burnt the onions." And I was just screaming at the TV, going, <laughs> "As a chef, how can you not know this?" I think nobody, it was MasterChef the professionals. Nobody cooks with beer. No, it, it's, it's it's considered a really weird thing if you cook with beer. I grew up with it because we in, in in Wisconsin we make bratwurst. We have a very uh, specific kind of bratwurst that we make in Wisconsin, which I honestly think is better than the German version. It's coarser and fattier and has more seasoning. Um, but we always parboil them in beer with onions. Huh. And even and we usually just do it with crap lager, you know. But yeah. even if you use the wrong crap lager, it's too bitter. Yep. Um, and I learned that when I was a teenager. Like for me, it's almost second nature. Like, because there's good flavor in beer, but you do have to know you can't just reach for any beer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it, 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 I don't know. It's always been weird to me why everybody drinks it and nobody cooks with it. Well, because we cook with wine the whole time. Yeah. It's seen as, you know, risottos, uh, coco yeah. van. Coco beer with a duchess or something is yeah. magnificent. I guess there are two. What are you laughing Coco at me for? Beer. Coco <laughs> beer. <laughs> oh, that'd be good with like a duchess de Bourgogne or something. Yeah. But no, there's two big stumbling blocks with beer, and one is the color. Like there's, it's, it's. I think it's generally better to cook with dark beers, and that turns your food brown. <laughs> um, <laughs> and also the bitterness, like, and yeah. also like, even if it's not a particularly bitter beer, the heat and reducing oh, things it. and stuff like that, it will amplify because, it. Because Johnny said about putting in. Uh, a hoppy beer into your stew or whatever you get this lovely hoppy beer and the smell of it is like that's going to taste great but once you boil it down and no. reduce it all you're left with is bitterness also especially with a lot of the new super fruity new world hops they can be really weird like I made beer bratwurst recently and I cooked with um, a village's their new APA a coyote right. which is super mango-y and I didn't really notice it when I was drinking it, but I just that's what that's the beer I had, so I, I cooked my bratwurst in it. And then you had these bratwursts that tasted a bit tropical. <laughs> um, which was weird, but you know, put enough sauerkraut on it and you didn't yeah. notice. But uh, yeah, I think that I think and I've always said this, I think that the, there's a much and I think science would have my back on this, but I just think there's a much broader range of flavors you get from beer. As opposed to wine, which is why it's harder to cook with, because you don't know, unless you know the beer really well and have cooked with it before, you don't know what it's going to be like, you know? And, uh, it's more, more complex, I suppose. A uh, lot more liquid. complex. It's got double the ingredients. Exactly. Cetera, so yeah. you just can't. It's got twice the opportunity, but also twice the risk. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Do you know yeah. how it's going to end up after it's been exposed to so much heat or long periods of time or right. whatever so it can yeah. be quite volatile yeah. yeah no I think the best beers to cook with are generally uh, dark beers and sour beers because they don't tend to go as bitter 
and the flavors, I think, uh, just match. Yeah, I mean, because hoppy beers are also very volatile, so you can, yeah. I think you can lose the flavor and the aroma very, very quickly. True, yeah. Whereas a dark beer, it's mostly sugar and malt-based. So. I mean, one of the good things about, or, or one of the main reasons that you should cook with, like, cooking lager is because all you want usually from a beer in a basic recipe is that malty sweetness hmm. and a, just a little bit of it, um, which is why they work and you really shouldn't be bothering with anything special. There's other things like, uh, you know, one of the best examples is um, Carbonade, the Belgian stew, which is made with uh, Flanders, Flemish red. Yeah. Uh, like, that's very specific. You need that acidity from it. But, yeah, usually if a recipe calls for beer and just beer, you just got to go with the most basic yeah, well, I mean, stuff, if, if you, you know? start putting special stuff into your fish batter, right? You're, yeah, <laughs> you're <Yeah>. an idiot. <laughs> yeah. Although I would quite like to try like uh, Lam- the the basil lambic. Yeah, that could work. In a fish batter might that be could awesome. Work. Actually, there's a certain irony behind like going on about hoppy beers and drinking them fresh and not getting them exposed to light or heat and keeping mm. them in your cellar and then just chucking it in <laughs> the stew <laughs> and boiling it. Yeah. So. Uh, what what was the the final of MasterChef like? Because it's pretty pressured to watch. Do you remember much of it? Yeah, the final was um, actually one of the. It was hard. The, all the challenges were hard. There wasn't a challenge where I thought like that was a piece of piss. Like they were all their challenges, you know. And also, as, if you're not a professional chef or a trained chef, you don't know what you're doing. Like every challenge, you're just like making it up as you go. Um, but yeah, the final because they often don't give you a lot of prep time. For the final, they gave us a week off so that we could like practice. So I have a long story, which I will tell. Dude, we, we can cut <laughs> it out if it's rubbish. So long just go story for short, it. I, I had I had a, this day. I, I, I took a week. I took four days. And the first day, I practiced my starter. Second day, my main. Third day, my dessert. And then on the fourth day, I wanted to practice all three and try to get it done in three hours, which is the time limit. So I had everything ready. I had all the uh, ingredients ready to go lined out. And then I realized, and I got up in the morning, I had my pajamas on, um, and I was just going to cook. Like, I was ready to go. And then I realized I didn't have any butter. So I was like, put some change in my pocket, pop out, get some butter, come back and cook. So I did just that. Um, I didn't have my phone or anything or my wallet, just a, a handful of coins. And then the door closed behind me, and I realized immediately I didn't have my keys. I was locked out. (laughs) And it was the dead of winter. So I had, like, three pounds in my pajamas. There was snow on the ground. This is December. And I had to figure out a way to get back into my flat. Um, What I should have done was just call my wife and be like, can you come? Like, she was at work, and I should have said, can you come let me in? (laughs) Uh, but I didn't want to bother her. So I had to go on this kind of epic journey to get to my estate agents, which was several miles away, um, using these three coins or th- 350 or whatever I had strategically. So I went to an internet cafe first to look up their number, and then I had to call them to make sure they could let me in or to get them to come and they were like we can't come over there but you can come get your key and I was like alright so I had to get on the overground I had to sneak on because I didn't have enough money to pay the fare I got the estate in agent your pajamas. in my pajamas yeah. in the you know I don't know five degrees outside so they put, you uh, probably think you snuck on but what happened is the guard took one look at you and went I'm just going to let him go on yeah. he's getting pretty weird <laughs> luckily there, there weren't any uh, there weren't any officers or whatever there but Anyway, got to the estate agent, picked up the key, snuck on the overground, back home, got there. Key was the wrong key. It was. Oh um, they gave me the wrong set of keys. 
So I was like, oh my god. Uh, and, and at this point, it had already been about two, three hours, like this, this journey there and back and everything. And uh, it was getting to the dark outside, and I was just like, I can't keep doing this. So I went to the dentist downstairs from my flat, and I asked, can I use your phone and your internet? Because I forgot the number for the, <laughs> the agent again. So I called them, and they were like, oh my god. And then they, I had to wait in the dentist waiting like area for, for 45 minutes or something, and they came, and they gave me the right key. And then I just, at the end of this, I was just like, I just felt like crying. Like I was so tired and cold. <laughs> but anyway, I I was like, no, I just gotta I gotta do this. So I cooked everything, got it done in three hours, uh, and yeah. That's... So then on the TV show, there and was then less pressure because you weren't in, in your PJs and right, tired and exactly. cold. Yeah, yeah, no, but um, the the final was, and also I really because I tanked it in a previous challenge, and it wasn't an elimination challenge; it was already in the finals. I did so badly on one of the challenges in Australia that when I got to the final, I was like, well, I'm not going to win anyway, so I'm just going to cook this food best I can and have a bit of fun. And I think actually all three of us, me, Tom, and Sarah, were in a similar kind of mindset. Um, so it was that one didn't feel like so much pressure. That one felt like fun, actually. Did, did you, you cook a burger for your winning dish, didn't you? Mm. Three burgers. Three burgers. <laughs> I did burgers for the starter. Um, uh, I love to start with a burger. When yeah. <laughs> my, my start is always a burger. Especially <laughs> when you knew when burgers Three coming. burgers. <laughs> Three little sliders, um, then uh, ramen, and then a little selection of British desserts, which I think, I, I love British desserts, so sticky toffee pudding and cheesecake and stuff like that. Uh, and then, yeah, then I, then I won. Congratulations. To everyone's surprise. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Eight years later. Congratulations. Yeah. So how did that then lead you to... I mean, the reason we got you on is to talk about your restaurant. We haven't got anywhere near it. But how did? Right. what was your journey then from MasterChef winner to opening Nanda? Uh For the first year, you get a lot of offers for odd jobs and stuff. Um, like, just because people want to have a MasterChef champion to do their thing. So I did a lot of those. Um, obviously, at the end of that first year, then there's a new winner. So... She gets all the offers. So you, get, you get a year of, of doing cool stuff. You get a cool year of like then... e- easy money, basically. Um, or, or rather, you get a year of um, people coming to you just because they, they really they know you. You're the most recent guy. You're the one who's, whose face they've, they remember. Um, anyway, after that, I, I was like, well, i got to get serious about doing something now. So I pitched a cookbook and also started doing pop-ups for the restaurant um, there were a lot of false starts with that, but I just there were like a lot of investors pulling out and premises falling through. I, I first started doing non-bond pop-ups in 2012, and we didn't open until 2015. Where was the first pop-up? It was in Hammersmith uh, at a pub run by a friend of mine. Um, but what made non-bond happen was a, a pop-up I did in Brixton, because I was looking around East London, like Hackney and Shoreditch and stuff, because um, at that point, there weren't any other ramen shops there. Uh, now we have Tonkotsu and Bone Daddy's. And I think Shoryu. Chain ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, there's nothing wrong. I like, I like those guys. But um, uh, yeah, so I wanted to open around here. Uh, Brixton wasn't really on the radar. But then I did this pop-up in Brixton. Um, and it went well. And the guys who ran that pub bought another site. And they were like, do you want to do it in Brixton? And I was like... Was that Maybe. in the village? <laughs> no, we, we're, we're just out. We're not in the market. We're outside the market on Cold Harbor Lane. Um, in a, a really beautiful building, actually, from 1921. It's one of the, like, because 
bricks. Yeah, it's quite ornate building. on the outside. It is, yeah. Ridges, isn't like, it? Like we yeah. didn't know because the the previous owners really didn't t- take care of it. Like, and it was covered in layers and layers of paint, and uh, the floor had probably four different floors <laughs> all just piled on top of each other. Um, so we didn't really know. We we knew it was an old building, um, but we didn't know what we'd find. And we found this gilded theater restaurant sign because there used to be a theater opposite. Um, we had the big window on the upstairs dipped in acid. We found the original terrazzo floor underneath, um, which is in pretty good shape, especially on the first floor. Uh, and we just restored whatever we could with our budget. Um, and yeah, it's a really, it's, I'm lucky that we're lucky to have that building because it's really cool. Um, and also, especially considering like Brixton's had so many riots and fires and stuff, like it, it's lucky that building exists at all. So yeah, it's, it's a beautiful place. Um, and we recently expanded as well into the, the premises next door to us, um, increasing our capacity to over 100 covers, which is crazy. Amazing. But, yeah. But it's mean, good. Is, is there plans for a number two? No. <laughs> that was... That was no. <laughs> <laughs> we're always looking for Sound opportunities. Sound like Beaver Town, there. Um, we're always looking for opportunities, but I, I don't know that Nanban is, like, rollout ready. I really don't think of it as a kind of like a kind of restaurant that you could just put in a different place yeah. and it would work um, I think it's very bricks and specific and that, that's actually come from a lot of like, it's part of it was we went into it with this attitude that we want to engage with the market in particular and the local food culture that's been here for decades uh, we don't want to just be another restaurant in Brixton that could be anywhere, you know, we want to be a Brixton restaurant and then as we uh, you know we're almost three years in now. As we went on, we realized, like, well, it's not just about what we can get in Brixton. It's also about what the customers in Brixton want. So we've changed the menu in that direction as well. Um, and it's hard to, like, take out a few of what are, are really our core and, and biggest selling dishes and imagine them, Anywhere like, in else, a Westfield. Yeah. Like, plantain katsu curry is one of our biggest sellers. Like, and, and we have a dish called uh, the leopard, which is this incredibly strange ramen um, with burnt garlic oil and Parmesan cheese and Scotch bonnet bamboo shoots and stuff. And it's like, Good that's, Lord, our, that's all the umami. It's great, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's our biggest seller in terms of ramen, um, well, almost in terms of anything. But like, I just I don't know if that would work somewhere else, even though it really works in Brixton. So I don't know. I've always wanted to take Nanban and put it in another area that has a really cool local food culture that we can kind of. Uh, drawn like I always thought Green Lanes would be a really cool place yeah. for a non-bun because we could take over like a, an old Turkish grill um, and use their um, you know their their charcoal setup and do like giant yakitori and, yeah. and, and Japanese grill dishes. I yeah, think that would be really fun. Do, do that. Yeah. Yeah. But like it's got to be exactly the right kind of place and offer for it to be a non-bun. I feel like. Mm. Uh, so no, <laughs> but like I say, if like something interesting comes up, we'll do it. We did street food um, last summer at a few different places, which was fun. Um, but it's always going to be a temporary thing. And I suppose why we invited you here today was to talk about the beer there and mm. beer in the restaurant industry. Yeah. It's sort of a, a bit of a strange thing, and I think it seems slightly lost at the moment. Like it's getting so much yeah. better than what it was. But it's sort of is a bit of a side thing for most restaurants. Totally. And they never it's, have the it's focus. It's a bizarre situation because most people, well, 
I'm, I'm talking anecdotally here, but I feel like most people, when they sit down and have dinner at home on like a weekday, they're having a beer with it. They're not having a glass of wine. Maybe at the weekend they switch over to the wine and it's a bit of an occasion. But lots of people enjoy beer and food together and never see them as connected. No. But do you... Uh, I'll throw it back at you guys. Because like, I realize... I used to think... Because we, we started off with a really kind of specific... Um, Beerless at Nanban, which well, first of all, we started off with a lot of collaborations, and I've always been lucky to have had uh, those those opportunities to do that. Like obviously, the pressure drop is the the big one, and we, the one we have is our core house beer. Um, but yeah, uh, we had Chris Mayer who runs the Hanging Bat. He did an amazing yeah. beer for us. Um, Quantum R.I.P. did us a purple sweet potato Scotch bonnet mild, which was amazing. <laughs> Um, Amazing. We'll talk, talk about Namban Kampai as well, the, the pressure drop one, yeah, just briefly. Yeah, so uh, Namban Kampai is started off. So Graham from uh, Pressure Drop, one of the founders, uh, was the cellarman at the Houston Tap before he went on to start uh, Pressure Drop. And he asked me, in very, very early days when they were basically in a garage in Soak Newington with like a 50-liter what would be considered a pilot kit, basically. Um, He asked me if I wanted to come do a beer. And I was like, yeah. And I really wanted to do a purple sweet potato beer because I'd had this purple sweet potato beer in Japan, which had this amazing, like, roasted sweet potato aroma and it's this bright purple color. And I was like, let's try this. And we never got it to work. (laughs) We tried everything. We tried roasting the potatoes, boiling them in, like, mashing in with them. We tried dry potatoing. Um, like, <laughs> I think that would have been a non-starter. That yeah, one. and, and Dry we did. Potatoing is like great. It's <laughs> yeah. good name for a beer, actually. <laughs> we did get a bit of the flavor in the end, but we never got the lovely purple color. Right. But anyway, then at another event, um, I can't remember what year it was, but it was a Fourth of July dinner, and I wanted to cook Wisconsin food, and Wisconsin is also famous for cranberries. So I was like, I really want to do like a hoppy, strong wheat beer with cranberry juice for a little bit of acidity and a nice pink color. And we made it, and it was called Wisconsin Wheat, and it was delicious. Um, and then that became Nanban Kampai. We took the same beer, which is full of like Amarillo hops um, and Bavarian yeast, um, and instead of the cranberry juice, we pitched uh, yuzu, orange, and grapefruit. And this became our house beer, Nanban Kampai. Uh, which is a huge... It's very popular. It's, I know it's popular for them, which is great because they keep it as part of their core range now. Uh, and it goes with all our food really well. Like, it's a really... Even though it's a strongly flavored beer, it's got sort of the right balance of everything so that it kind of goes with everything. Um, it's not... It's bitter, but it's not, it's not super bitter or too bitter. It's, it's tart, but it's not like a sour beer. Um, and it's got a nice body to it. Like, it's, it's got that lovely sort of chewy, wheat beer, frothy body to mm. it. Um, but yeah, no, beer's tough. It really is. And I used to think, because I was going to say to you, um, both of you, like, I know you guys obviously like beer, <laughs> um, and you want to have it with food, but when you have it with food, do you actually think, like, on a regular basis, is this going to be good together, or am I, am I drinking the right thing with the right food? So I do now. Yeah. Um, what I would say is I've always... So I always used to drink beer in the pubs. Uh, back before I got really got into beer, I'd always drink beer in pubs when I had food. Mm. Um, and I always used to think you'd get to dessert and you'd have something sweet and then you'd have a sip of beer and you'd be like, that is rancid. <laughs> so I kind of learned quite early on that even if they're, they're not necessarily connected, they can disconnect <laughs> quite yeah, easily. Yeah. Like that bitterness just hits you in the face after you've had something really sweet. Right. So I've always known that really we should be paying a little bit more attention to what we're drinking when we're eating. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, back then I wouldn't specifically pick a bitter if I was having a stew or mm. pick an IPA if I was having pulled pork or whatever it is. Um, that's something that sort of slowly crept into me. And that was due to the education that I sort of undertook myself through the Craft Beer Channel and stuff. So I'm always keen to try and jumpstart that education in people on the channel. So we do a lot of cooking with beer, a lot of food and beer matching. And yeah. if we're ever eating on the channel, we always say, hey, this will be sweet with a whatever it is. Yeah. I don't know about you, Rob. Yeah. Well, I sometimes just do it the wrong way around. So it's like you're drinking a beer and you're like, oh, man, this will go so well with like a big stew. Right, or, right. And like, it's, you do it in reverse order and there's a lot more seldomly you'd eat food and go oh this certain style of beer would be good like yeah be nice with this and yeah it's it's just how i sort of think and i know a lot of people think like that when they're drinking beer there's often references to food and what will go well with it yeah but a lot i think there's there's an extra issue because beer is so varied if you if you cook something generally in my fridge i have lager parallel IPA and probably a lambic chilled in, mm. in the bit where I sort of age my beers those are basically my three options right so often I'll drink something and go uh, sorry eat something and go oh I wish I had a, a, a Flemish red or I had a, a, a fruited goza or something but you don't keep that stock really chilled in your house whereas with right. wine I think it's a little bit easier you go well I need a red for this a really fruity red or a really oaky red yeah and generally you might have it there i don't know but this is the thing like and i've noticed this about myself recently is like when i drink beer with a meal i'm not necessarily thinking like oh i have to have a specific thing i just need something that i know won't be bad and usually that's the one that's like kind of the least it's like probably a lager yeah yeah so i used to think we had a specific problem at nonbon which is that nobody was interested in good beer particularly with the food um and we started off like i said with this kind of kind of strange super specific beer list which was I was trying to cover a broad range of flavors and styles but also I wanted things that would go with specific kinds of food like we had in um, Rochefort 8 back then which is a really really weird beer for a Japanese restaurant (laughs) let's be honest but it went really well uh, with our curry goat like it was a great beer for uh, rich spicy food um, we had in Yadokai the uh, 13% crazy five-way collaboration that I did with uh, Wild Beer and, and Hanging Bat, um, which is always going to be a tough sell. I mean, it's a, it's a very wacky beer. Uh, but obviously, it, it's a brute to be like a sake. It's very umami. It's got a bit of yuzu in it and uh, it went great with uh, sort of our more traditional Japanese stuff. So there was a, there was a lot of thought that I put into my beer list. And then I was like, I was upset when people weren't ordering Rushfort 8, you know? <laughs> um, or, oh, we had in Dragon Stout as well, like the classic Jamaican yeah. punchy stout, um, which went with a lot of our uh, more Caribbean. Where do you buy that from? Because every Offie has one. But yeah, I just, we, just who... we literally got it from the Offie. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we bought it in, yeah. <laughs> just some ghost uh, distributor no one's ever met, just bringing no, in. Because even, 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 even the Offie didn't really know where to get it. He was like, <laughs> I just get it from a cash and carry. I was like, well, I should go Probably to the dusting the bottle off as he did it <laughs> yeah. as well. You're the only guy <laughs> drinking it. That stuff is fighting juice as well. But um, <laughs> yeah, so over time I was like, well, a lot of these aren't working. And also, I, I remember we had Hitachino Nest on. Um, I think it was the Classic Ale, which is one of my all-time favorite beers, and I think the cedar flavor of it is just perfect for a lot of Japanese food. Um, but we wound up having to put that on offer because it was going out of date. 
And I was like, this is tragic, man. And I checked the figures, like what was selling, and we have only space for one draft line at Nanban, and it's Kirin, because they gave... Well, I like Kirin, for one thing, I should say that. Of the Japanese lagers, that's probably my favorite. Um, but they gave us a loan to build the bar, so they're our house beer. And I'm very happy to have them as our house beer. Um, but that outsells everything like incredibly like even the food if you check the sales figures <laughs> Kieran is number one um, it, it sells more than the Karage it sells more than any that, other that's ramen. by cash taken through the till that's by quantity one. right and probably cash taken <laughs> haven't checked that one um, but what I realized is uh, people aren't thinking about food um, and even I'm not like I if I'm and also if I'm gonna have a meal like at a place like Nanban or I was at Bredo's recently Bredo's Tacos is amazing food but I was like, well, I'm actually ordering a bunch of different things with a bunch of different flavors. So I want to get in the thing that's just going to go with all of them so I don't really have to worry too much. Which, Kirin fits the bill perfectly because it's very close to sparkling water, let's be real. <laughs> um, like, it's super bland. It's, it's really refreshing and it's good beer. It's well made. But there's not much to it. So it's an easy choice. It's also our cheapest beer. Um, but yeah, people just, and, and I myself, even as a beer geek, like I'm just not, I'm not being that specific about it. So I can't blame people if they're not saying, oh, I want that one with this dish and that one with that dish. They, they just want a beer that's going to be okay. So like, I, I realize we're, we're never going to sell dark beers. We have never, like they've always been poor sellers just because that's not what people think of when they go for food. Um, it's always got to be light. Uh, and now that's how I do the beer list. It's, I've got to be a little bit more commercial about it. Otherwise, we end up just having beer sit on the shelves, which is not, not fair for anybody. Well, that's an interesting point, actually, because maybe that is the problem. If you go to uh, a fancy restaurant with a great wine list, it's too look, much. At, look at their sales figures, though. It's probably house wine, house wine, house wine, house wine. Or the second cheapest, if you're really uh, splashing yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you're me. Um, but uh, if you look at their, the exciting wines that they're known for, mm. they probably sell very little. But the glory of wine is right. that doesn't matter. If they're not getting through it, it's sitting there. It's getting better with age, it's, whatever. Yeah, that's the thing but with, with wine. Beer, you know, Unless if, it's a lambic. If you've got a Hikachina Nest, that's yeah. really nice that is going to be in the bottom 5% of your sales, much like the fine wine. Exactly. But you need to sell that within three months or exactly. else you're, you're in trouble. And maybe that is the, the reason why that's the problem. Like, it, I would say the sales mix of all those restaurants, they're still going to be 80% like yeah. cheap wine. Yeah. But also, we, people are very, very drawn to uh, brands that they know and recognize. So Kieran is one. Nanban Kanpai. People might not know Pressure Drop, but if you're in Nanban, you know Nanban. So you yeah, can probably yeah. get that beer. Uh, Brixton, we sell a lot of Brixton. Uh, now we have Electric IPA and used to be uh, Atlantic. We did a collaboration with them, which was fantastic, uh, using hibiscus and green tea. Um, but uh, yeah, people will go for the ones that they know. That's the other thing. And, and it's true with wine as well, I think, because we, we recently switched the drinks menu to list the wines, because I was sick of people just getting the cheapest ones. And I was like, we have good wines, or decent wines anyway. Um, <laughs> I want people to order some different wines. So I started listing them by grape varietal instead of by the name of the winery, which people don't, they don't know them. Um, and it's, it's worked. It's like people are now ordering more Sauvignon Blancs and, and uh, Riesling and stuff. But the thing is, like, you shouldn't really drink red wine at my restaurant. It, it goes with almost nothing. <laughs> But people still do it. Like, people just want red wine. So yeah, lots of people don't like it. white wine, like the acidity yeah. to it. They're just like, no, I'm a red drinker. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, like, you can't blame them for that. Yeah. And it's not going to ruin the food or anything. 
Um, but I just I think that generally I think it's a myth that people are are doing the same thing with wine. I think that some people go into a restaurant, they look at the list, they're like, oh, I know that or that that wine will that grape will be good with this. But wine is complicated too, like vintages and regions, and like you, you don't really know even if you know the grape varietal or something or the region. I think very few people really have that kind of thought process as wine as well. But wine, the wine industry or community has done a better job of positioning it that way, you know? So, so you, you genuinely think that people aren't going into a restaurant and necessarily picking their wine exactly to their food either? It's very, the whole food and alcohol rarely. matching is, is a little bit of a myth as well. Very it, much. That wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. I, I've never done it with wine, and I, I only do it with beer if I'm in the right place or I'm at home and I know I've got the right thing in basically yeah. so I, I used to get quite frustrated at Namba because I was like why are people drinking my delicious very carefully selected beer but now I just realize that that's not true of any drink I think. So, so here's a question yeah <clears throat> why do you keep having specialty beer is if you could just have just have Kirin <laughs> I have asked myself would you do better do you yeah. think actually the biggest question for me is sake because sake is really the thing to drink at Namba and it goes with everything it's delicious we have a really good sake list but nobody, nobody drinks it. Like, we'll sell very, very little sake because people know even less about that than they do beer. Mm. Um, so I was like, why don't I just, just slash this menu down and just have two sake, or why don't I just have four beer? And the reasons are is because, one, I think that's part of who we are. It's just like, it, it, it is, like, we want people, even if they don't go for it, we want people to have the best possible... Yeah, it's like the wine that's a grand on the list and you'll, you'll right. sell one a year. I mean, and that's great, but... That's not even our best wine, probably. Mm. And, like, the most expensive stuff isn't necessarily the, uh, the best. But, like, we, we want people... I want people to have a good time, and that comes from having what I think is the best possible product, you know? And that includes drink. Drink is a big part of that. Um, so we, we need to have this stuff there for people who do want it and who do care and who do think about it. Um, and... Like, it might not be as sort of specific or as niche or whatever as, as I would like, but then I, I'm not even that kind of person as well. Like, I often, when I'm at Nanban, I'll just drink Kirin or Kanpai as well. Uh, and, and the thing is, like, you, we do have specialist beer, but it's not as special as it used to be. Um, like I said, we had to go for brands that people uh, tend to recognize more and, and respond to what customers want, like... People would come in and they say, what Japanese beers do you have? Which is a fair question. A Japanese restaurant, we sell, well, only Kirin. Um, which is how Hidashi Nunes wound up back on the list. Um, because they started selling their lager in cans here. James Clay's doing it. So we got that, and that's selling a lot better. Because we can point to it on the menu and say, there's another Japanese beer for you. And because it's a lager, people are... More it's very accessible. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's what they have in mind with a Japanese beer. So, but it's still very good and a lovely can. Everybody likes the owl. Mm. Um, so leading on from that, um, you as a consumer, mm. so you're picking somewhere for dinner, do you look at beer lists? Or would you go to somewhere where you've been told the beer list is amazing, food's For also food? great? For food, yeah. No. Because... There have been a few restaurants in the past few years that have opened and say they specialize in beer, um, and they have good lists and everything. But then you get there and it, like it's it's not actually that good. Like yeah, I've got a bit of an issue with this, and I've been to a few places like around Suhu and stuff. Yeah, and they've got a printed list, and there's things like cloud water on it. It's right, like, <laughs> and you they, know that's gone. They, they they make a different beer every time, and how have you got this on the <laughs> yeah. list? Um, and the, there's a few other things that I've noticed like that that are creeping up. And obviously yeah. they've 
been told this beer, been told that's fine, printed these lists, and then it's just not there or not available. And you know, we work with so many small breweries, and mm. it's really hard to get stock consistently off them. Like they're tiny. Yeah, they're of course. Brewing, like you talked about pressure drop there. Yeah, we were brewing on a five barrel kit, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I think sometimes it's easy to remove yourself from that and just think that every brewery is massive and it's just constant stream of bottles just no. rolling out, and it's not. And it's <laughs> becoming uh, increasingly common for breweries to not have a core range as well. Yeah. So like, like we uh, we got in Burning Sky this year. Um, and it's their seasonal saisons that we're, we're stocking. So we just put on the menu seasonal saison. Ask your server for details. Um, it's not selling. <laughs> yeah, I think because well, you, you add that extra level of complexity, yeah. you go. You have to ask. Then yeah, it's also know, the, one of the most person. expensive beers on our list as well. Yeah, but it's also Burning Sky saison. So I'm going to bloody ask That's next the time thing. I'm in. Because <laughs> for me, it's like this is one of the best breweries in the UK ever. Yeah. You know, but then I was like, well, if people want that, I probably should have got Colonel because they're also. <laughs> well, that, that's it. Actually, Colonel is an incredibly common uh, beer on restaurant lists in London, yeah. at the very least. It's, it's, I think, because you can just go Colonel IPA, and lots of people won't notice that the hop's completely different nice. to the last one they had. But also because it is, you know, because of Colonel's uh, business model, because of the way that Evan runs it, he wants to make sure that London's well supplied. Right, And right. it means that you can always get hold of Colonel. Yeah. I mean, and the table beer is like the good equivalent of Kieran. It's <laughs> like, it just goes with everything, but it also happens to be a great beer. Yeah. Um, and it's not very strong, which is a bonus. So if you get a table beer, you know, the clue's in the name, I guess. Yeah. Maybe if there were more table beers being made, and I think there is, with the trend for lower ABV beers, yeah. there's lots more table beers being made, particularly yeah. now that we're experimenting a bit more with yeasts and getting flavor at lower ABV. Yeah, yeah. I drank the Brick table beer last night, actually, mm. and it's tasting really, really good. It's just like 3%. Yeah, but then, then the problem is everybody just goes for that one, you know? Yeah. And, and they ignore the rest of the list. But getting back to your question about, like, how I if I think about beer when I go out to eat like I, I choose restaurants based on the food um, and then if they happen to have good beer I'm like this is a bonus like Somsa um, and Bredos again Bredos had a really good list uh, uh, dominated by Magic Rock which is no bad thing um, I'd like to have seen a little bit more uh, of a range in places like that but like Somsa maybe my favorite restaurant in the world at this point actually they, they have Magic Rock and they have Wild Beer um, and they, they do a really like solid job, you know. You're not going to find anything particularly weird there necessarily, or, or really like geeky. But you don't need that. Um, so when I find a restaurant that's got great food and they have good beer, I'm like, this is amazing. This is all I all I want. But I'm also like, I'm a real advocate of drinking what's best with the food. So like, I wouldn't go to a French restaurant and be like, why don't you have any good beer here, and just ignore the wine, you know. <laughs> Like, in Japan, if you go to an izakaya, um, they'll have probably one beer, and one of each wine, they'll have a red wine and, and a white wine, they'll usually just list it as that on the menu, and then dozens of sakes and, and shochu, because that's what you drink. Like, you know, I, I, if I go to, a, uh, like, a Caribbean restaurant, I'm probably going to drink Red Stripe or a rum cocktail. Like, that's just, that's just what matches the food. Um, and, and this is the thing, like going back to Nanban, fair enough you're drinking Kirin, because this is absolutely what you'd be drinking in Japan. Yeah. Like, so, so if you go to a, a, a classic gastro pub, are you going to pick a, a British bitter or pale? Oh, yeah. That, no, I, I would have like a Fuller's ESB or something. Mm. In fact, one of my, my earliest and favorite 
British dining experiences was uh, down in Devon. I was visiting some friends of my wife's who, who uh, lived down there. We went to a pub, can't remember the name of the pub, ordered a, uh, like a beef shin pie and had some delicious, strong, malty bitter with it. And it was perfect, like beautiful. Um, so that's the thing. And I, I don't, I'm not usually, I'm not the one who, I'm not reaching for an ESB most of the time. Like if I'm just drinking yeah. beer, I tend to drink so uh, different stuff. But. I guess the thing to sort of learn is that there, there is a connection there, but maybe you connect the whole food culture, take a holistic approach, and you go, right, people around here mostly drink this, which means if we're drinking tr- food traditional to this area, then I should probably order that with with the local food you don't right. have to necessarily look at each menu and go uh, each dish on the menu and go well i have that with that that with that that with that a bitter probably would go with your uh no what's a classic british starter like a, a pate yeah and then and then a beef shin pie or a plowman's lunch plowman's yeah bitter would be greatest lovely, british dish there is <laughs> <laughs> But it usually comes on a board. People always ask me on, on podcasts, for example, like what would your uh, like your last meal be? Or What's your, your perfect Sunday? <laughs> <laughs> um, lots of Kieran. No, uh, but I always say a plow, like uh, I would have ramen and probably a good lobster mac and cheese for my last meal. But I've I've always said I want a plowman's with a, like a, a a lot of barley wine. <laughs> um, I think that would just send me right off, and I'd be very happy. Craft beer will truly hit the mainstream when a final meal. Is a dude saying, no, <laughs> barley wine and a cheese ball. Basically. It's almonds and a barley wine, please. This is achievable. Like, you can go to a Fuller's pub and probably get a Plowman's, and they'll probably have Golden Pride. Mm. That's your evening sorted, man. Or your lunch. Or your last meal ever. <laughs> yeah. So before me and Rob deconstruct that conversation, I thought, I thought it would be worth just flagging the fact that you can get us on at Beer Merchants and at Craft Beer Channel and on Facebook for both and Instagram for both to get this conversation going because what he said was pretty controversial and I wonder whether other people match beer like, like I do on the channel or like most people do in talks that you go to going, well, you should have a Gers with this and then an IPA with this and a, 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 I don't know, a brown ale with your pudding or whether you go, I'm in a pub so I'm going to have a bitter, I'm in an izakaya, I'm going to have a kirin. Well, there's a more holistic, almost geographical approach to it. Yeah, I suppose the big thing I got out of that was sort of thinking about it more. Um, and do I go to a restaurant because the beer list is really good? Probably not. Do I go to a restaurant with a good beer list and come away slightly happier? Definitely but I don't think it really sways your judgment. It does 100% in pubs. Every single time I go to a pub, I think about that, and it's, yep. you know... And all of- pubs should have their bloody beer list online so that you can look. It's one of my biggest bugbears. I want to know what you serve. But it, it's, it, it's so important, but you go to a restaurant to eat primarily, um, mm. and if you can have really nice beer when you're there, even better. But I did find that fascinating, that it's just... It is the secondary thing, um, and I also, the sort of sell-by date thing, I just never thought of it like that before. Yeah, I mean, so, so working through Cave, we know that selling to restaurants is tricky because they don't get through the volume, so minimum orders aren't met or they can't make the GP work and that kind of stuff. So we kind of knew it, but yeah, I mean, the fact that he couldn't even sell Rochefort, uh, which is A, a beautiful beer, and beer, like, it has, I think it has three years shelf life on it. The fact that he was struggling to sell that within its date is... It's mad, yeah, yeah. Um, and probably 
taste really good. It probably still tasted great, but... But completely. Um, and you just don't think about that with wine. It's sort of risk-free shoving a 300-pound bottle of wine on your menu, or even an 80-pound bottle of wine on your menu, because yep. if no one drinks it, no one drinks it. You've only bought six bottles, and it'll be fine, and it will be fine, and it will be fine for years to come. Whereas beer, especially what's sort of trendy right now, the expensive beers... Like people like Cloudwater are only putting three months on their IPAs, which you know is fine. They want people to drink it fresh, but how are restaurants supposed to guarantee that they'll go through 25 cans? Yeah, it does make me laugh. The Cloudwater have put three months on their table beer, and you're like, it's a, it's a table beer. Like it's supposed to be on the table, and yet you're putting dates on it that mean that nobody can put it on their table. But that, yeah, that is is crazy. Um, I actually sell to a lo- really lovely account up in North London. Um, called the Bill and Last, and they have kind of got around it. And I never thought of it like this before, but they just have loads of lambic in their fridge that they get off. Hundred percent. I've 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 said that in talks. Like if you get in beers with really long dates, if anything, they get more exciting as they go along rather than getting worse. So it's great for low volume. You know, they just put on their on their draft pretty accessible beer. It's good beer, but it's very accessible. And then they leave their fridges to be absolutely mad, and they'll buy very small quantities of us mm. and he doesn't do it to sell lots but it's risk free because that Tilquin Goose has probably been sitting in the fridge for a year but it's going to be tasting absolutely banging so you know maybe that is how people should start looking at it a mm. bit more do take risks but just on the stuff that keeps longer because yeah. yeah beer just doesn't have the same shelf life most of the time than than the wine industry does um, and therefore you're not taking as big a punt yeah, absolutely. I guess there's a there needs to be a balance between sort of the 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 dream view, which is that everyone would stop stop selling wine in restaurants and start selling beer. You know, that'd be brilliant news for the for the beer industry. But that's not going to happen, and B, it probably shouldn't happen. Um, so we just need to be more realistic, and that then we can start marketing and selling, and you know, as a drinker, promoting it to your mates realistically. You can start going, yeah, we're going to go to a classic pub. Let's have a bitter instead of a wine. Whereas I'd probably go to a club, uh, to a club? No, never. Go to a pub and say, well, we'll have a bitter with that. But then, you know, they've got an IPA in the fridge and they've got this, which probably automatically turns people off anyway. But also, do you really want to drink four different beers with your meal? Wouldn't you just, if you're in a nice pub, really just have an ESP? Well, yeah, you, do just, you don't tend to drink as much in a restaurant. So th- that's the sort of major difference as well you're eating and you'll only have one or two beers so Mm. throughput is just not the same um, as well but I also find it really interesting talking about sort of menu placement and where to put things like his wine list how he lists it and how big a change it does and it kind of pointed out to me and reminded me of me when he just says people don't have a clue because when I go to a restaurant and pick wine I'm always the second cheapest type of guy because I just yep. I, I wish I knew more about wine, but I really don't. So it's so hard to know. And I, th- I think, put, yeah, putting tasting notes is so helpful for me when I go to buy wine because then, you know, it might, it might still be a crap wine, but I know there'll be some strawberry or some, uh, some oak in there, whatever I'm looking for. And we, we do it at the tap. We make sure that there's, there's tasters there because we get people coming in who have no clue what these breweries are, what these beers are, what these styles are. But if you tell them, yeah, there's, there's pine and citrus, they might go, oh, well, I had a beer a bit like that once. Um, and it's true across all alcohol, the whole alcohol spectrum. People need help. They're big worlds. 
Yeah, and because restaurants are a bit more broad, you know, like a craft beer bar, nine times out of ten, at least one of the group are going to be really into the beer, so they're going to be able to help and advise. But restaurants aren't like that. They attract a different audience. Mm. Um, so having a little bit more info maybe is important. And I think the way he said listing it was really fascinating. You know, don't do it by price. There's other ways you can do it, be it by style or alphabetically even, and just give info on the beer. Because um, the, the it's not cheapskates like you going, well, yeah. I'm not going to be a proper cheapskate, Al. The good thing about beer, though, is the, the, the cost is usually not as grand as, as wine. You know, you're yeah. not gonna... And it's all within a, a margin of, like, I don't know, seven or eight quid. Yeah, exactly. So you're not going to get stung and be like, could I have that beer and it's going to cost £200? Yep. Unless you buy a magnum of Trefontaine. Well, yeah. I wish there were restaurants that had that. Um, although the tap does have street food at the, week, at the weekends and uh, magnums. Um, yeah, so that was, I mean, that, that was really, really interesting. Um, and as a complete nerd as well, it was interesting to hear about the MasterChef experience. Um, that story about him getting locked out is, is just incredible. Um, and the fact he won it after that is just blows, blows my mind. A really interesting guy. Uh, if you haven't been to Nanban, it is absolutely awesome. Um, the beer list is, is now smaller, as you could probably imagine, but still uh, has some really nice beers on there. And the Namban Kampai that he brews with... Um, oh, so good. Uh, pressure drop, yeah, it's a really good beer. Um, so do get down to Namban if you can. Uh, and <laughs> That rhymes. Uh, and also, we did a video with Tim on the Craft Beer Channel, which we made a, a beer katsu, which is bloody delicious. Um, so you can check out that. We'll put that in the show notes. Anything to add, Rob? I think that's everything other than none of us have a clue sort of was, was that the outcome of that no one knows what they're doing when they're choosing alcohol in restaurants so don't bother trying yeah just keep it simple keep it geographical or seasonal uh, and don't worry too much about offering this hugely complex experience of matching a beer with every single course like that's not necessarily how people want to drink Make sure that your beer list is small and perfectly formed, like you think with a menu as well. You know, you don't want 100 dishes to choose from. Um, and that way you'll get through the beer um, before it goes out of date and the customers that come in will understand what on earth they've got themselves in for, which to me now makes perfect sense. But until that, that hour chat we had, uh, I'd have probably argued him down. Yeah, 100%. Um, and yeah, back to the... Fill your fridge with stuff that last long mm-hmm. um, that's where you go big I think um, because if you go too big on the hoppy stuff you just run the risk of not getting through it because not by a long stretch will everybody in your restaurant be buying beer um, and for those type of beers freshness is so so important so take the risks on the, the, the stuff you can age and then keep a really quality but trimmed down um, fresh section I suppose yep. and you can always add to it um, which I, I often tell us to customers as well in, in bars. You start here and you grow. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot easier to grow than take away yeah. um, without wasting stuff. So I think that is, is the way to, way to do it. Yeah. There you go. Sound advice uh, from the bubble. Uh, that is the end of episode two. I hope you enjoyed that one. Uh, please do check out the Twitters, the various Twitters and Facebooks that we have. They're all in the show notes. Uh, and join us for episode three. <laughs> I love that stuff. Been drinking it for years. Drinking it for years. Drinking it for years. Drinking it for years. You know, I, I they recently decided to add more hops to it. Just do it. Hops to it.
You know, I heard they recently decided to add more hops to it. To it. Hops to it. Shake out, shake out, yeah, figure, 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 figure,